0: I've been really excited about this project called Grace Off the Stage, because this is an opportunity for us to just celebrate the faithfulness of God and the ordinary lives of people that are in our church family and in community, and I hope that you'll take the time to tune in. We, we released the first episode of season one on Tuesday morning at 5 a.m., all right, so it'll be available for those of you that get up early and you exercise or you're getting up early, getting ready for work or school. Um... And so you can find that, um, the, the various places to find the podcast is it'll be on our Facebook page if you're a Facebook user. It'll also be on our YouTube channel. Those of you that are watching online, you use the YouTube channel. Um, At the top of our YouTube page, you'll see the Grace Off the Stage link and you can subscribe to that as well. Um, It'll have its own channel, but it'll be linked to our church YouTube channel. But if you're like me and you listen to podcasts because you just want the audio version of stuff so you can speed it up and all that, you'll be able to find it on all your Podcast platforms by searching grace off the stage. All right, and we plan to have that actually available by this afternoon So you can at least go find the link um, Even though the podcast won't be available. You'll at least be able to find the channel um, a- As you look uh, later this afternoon grace off the stage, but I think it's going to be powerful Some of those stories that you heard are just clips of some really powerful gospel presence just God in people's story, doing remarkable things. And, and our prayer is that two things happen, is that it reminds you of the faithfulness of God in your life, though sometimes it's easy to miss when we're staring down the barrel of life and crisis and hardship. Um, but we also hope that it gives you the confidence to trust in him. Um, as you get to hear how these folks have trusted in God in some really unusual circumstances, uh, we hope that you it continues to fortify your love and trust in the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, flip on over to Mark chapter 11 as we continue our discussion through the life and ministry of Jesus. And while you're headed over there, I want to give a nod to what Etienne was just talking about with the the parent workshop. Um, That'll be on August 27th. We'll talk about it over the next few weekends, and you'll see advertisements online. And yeah, we're going to have sheriff department involvement and school board involvement. And ultimately, like, here's the deal, folks, like, and there's been a lot of, a lot of upset folks in our community about sexual education curriculum and stuff that's being exposed to our kids at school. And I understand why, but let me, let me just be frank with you right quick. Your kids' culture beat anything that the school board can offer to the punch. Your kids' culture is the number one educator in their life. Their video games, their music, their friends, their media have taught them more than you realize. And look, I understand there's folks in here say, oh, not my kids because we don't give them a phone or we lock down their stuff or we have parental controls set up on all of our stuff. That might be true, but the kids sitting next to your kid on the bus don't. And the kid that your kid rides to the soccer game with doesn't either. And just so you know, when they're in the locker room with the other kids, the other kid isn't saying, isn't hiding over there in a corner watching something by themselves. They're telling your kid, hey, come here, I want you to see this. Your kid's culture is influencing and shaping the way they see the world. And so this is among the first generations where the kids are actually smarter than the parents. I think y'all would agree. Um, they have to show you how to use your devices. Um... They're they're quick and they're smart. We wanna make sure you know the language of their culture. We wanna make sure that you get exposed legitimately to the video games that they're playing and the music they're listening to. We've polled kids to find out what their favorite games and songs are. We're gonna show clips of songs and clips of videos. We're gonna show clips of games. Uh, We're gonna look at some social media loopholes that kids have access to nowadays that they haven't told you about. Um, we're going to help you understand the language of your kid. And and, and really, it's going to be raw. You're going to blush a lot. And somebody's going to get mad and say, Dustin, I can't believe you would show something like that in the church. Look, for the the glory of God, I want you to know what your kids are being exposed to. And it's going to be ugly. You hear what I'm saying? So that's why no kids are invited. You come. Parents, it's parents, only. it's adults only. Parents and grandparents too. You need to be a part of this, grandparents. All right, you're even further removed from this digital generation. You need to know what it is that's being presented to your kids and grandkids all the time. And we're gonna even, because I know, like we don't know how to do all the things the kids do. We're gonna have a geek squad here just for you. So bring your devices, all right? Bring your tablets and your phones, and we're gonna have Sheriff's Department Geek Squad people and some of our college student Geek Squad people, and we're gonna show you how to do the stuff. We also wanna equip you with the language of how to have hard conversations with your kids about the stuff you know next to nothing about. All right, and so that's what that day's going to be about on August 27. This is going to be a great day for us, but it is adults only. All right, so I hope that you'll come be a part of that. Grab you a little flyer on the way out, share it with your friends. You'll see us continue to advertise for it. By now, hopefully, you're in Mark chapter 11 as we continue in the life and ministry of Jesus. We've been studying his life and ministry through the book of Mark as we've gone chapter by chapter, verse by verse, um, to just truly know who Jesus is. Because let's, let's be honest, like you want to talk about culture having influence of how we see the world? Uh, I think if we're honest with ourselves, culture has had a lot of influence over how we see Jesus. There's a whole lot of different Jesuses out there. And if I was to interview any random person on the side of the road, they would describe Jesus differently. Quite frankly, if I was to interview a swath of you guys today, we probably would all describe Jesus a little bit differently. So we wanted to take an up close and personal look at his life to make sure we didn't get that wrong because there's only one true king of heaven and earth. His name is Jesus, and he is introduced in so many ways throughout the Scriptures, so that it leaves no room for us to make a mistake on who he really is because only the real Jesus can save us from our sins. Only the real Jesus went to the cross and died for us. Only the real Jesus was resurrected from the grave. Only the real Jesus is the savior of the world, not the one that our culture has formed up in our mind and our imagination. That one can't save you. Only this one can. And so we've been studying his life and we've been looking at what he's really like, what his love was really like, what his ministry was really like, what his teaching was really like. And it's been a bit alarming at times. Today won't be much different. As we enter into the passion week of Jesus's life and ministry, this is the last week of his earthly ministry. This is as he is on his way to the cross. He's not in big trouble yet with the religious leaders. I mean, they are hunting him down to try to figure out how they can justifiably kill him. But at this point, nobody's shouting crucify him. It was just yesterday in Jesus's ministry that they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, you are the king of heaven and earth. They were shouting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who is going to establish the kingdom of our father David forever. Like 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for Passover week. Watching their calendars. Hearing the rumors of how Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. And now they're shouting the glory of Jesus all over town. It's such a mighty roar that the Pharisees are trying to calm everybody down. But they can't do it. That was... Jesus' triumphal entry that we talked about last week as he rode side saddle on a donkey to the mighty roar of hearing people shout Hosanna like we did this morning. And then we pick up in the story that day in Jesus' ministry right after he entered into town, passed by a multitude of people. It says in chapter 11, verse 11, that he entered into Jerusalem, went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So they headed back out of town. Jesus stopped by the temple to take a quick look around. Uh, today is gonna be one of the many days over these next few seasons, this next week of Jesus' life, where he's gonna be saying some things and doing some things that are iconic as well as strange. The disciples are gonna be scratching their head just like we are. But what Jesus is doing is he's preparing their hearts and minds for what is to come. And he's teaching these lasting lessons of the kingdom of heaven touching earth. And he's displaying his authority in some remarkable ways that seem mysterious in the moment, but after his resurrection, we have a better understanding of why he did what he did. But this is one of those strange days in Jesus' last week where he does these iconic, but unforgettably weird things. And after he stopped by the temple, they went back to Bethany to spend the night. And then on the following day, verse 12, they're on their way back from Bethany, headed back to the temple. And Jesus was hungry and seeing in the distance, a fig tree that was in leaf, say in leaf. You're going to need to remember that. He went out to see if he could find anything on it, something to eat. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not the season for figs. And so he says to the tree, well, no one's gonna ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. What happened to Jesus? He wake up on the wrong side of the bed or what? Jeez. The disciples heard it, didn't say nothing about it. I'm sure they was as weirded out by that as we are. Like, what's up? I mean, give the tree a chance. It's not even fig season, Jesus. And then they came to Jerusalem, headed to where they were actually going. And he entered the temple. And then he began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple and he overturned tables, flipped them on their head of the money changers and the seats of those that were selling pigeons and other livestock. And he wouldn't even allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Gee whiz, what's going on here? And he began to teach them, saying to them, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of what? My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? All the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching, not to mention they were all shouting Hosanna just the day before. And when evening came, he, Jesus, and the disciples went out of the city, and they passed by in the morning and saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is actually withered. That's crazy. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says, it will come to pass and it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also is in heaven, may forgive you of your trespasses. Okay told you this was a strange day in the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, one of the things I want to make sure that you notice in this is this literary style that Mark is using. We see throughout the gospels quite a bit. We even see Jesus do it sometime when he's telling parables. But what you're seeing did you notice that like kind of, kind of the way that Mark packaged this together. It was the temple, the fig tree, the temple, the fig tree. It's like he'd tell a little bit of the story, then he'd go to another story, then he'd come back and then he'd go back again. You notice that? Like that's supposed to catch our attention. And this is a literary style that is kind of sandwiched together, this ministry of Jesus. And we're supposed to take note that, oh, wait a second, the temple, the fig tree, the temple, the fig tree, this is all supposed to go together as one sandwich with several layers but we were meant to eat it and take of it all at once so that we understand what the big picture of both of these situations are supposed to paint for us. So in order to do that well, let's, let's break it down into the pieces so we have at least better understanding of what this sandwich that we're trying to eat is being dressed with so we can take a big bite of the whole thing. Let's start with the temple, shall we? That was strange. Listen, your mama would never let, let you act like that. Walking up into the temple, flipping tables and chairs on its head, shouting over the crowd. As a matter of fact, you've probably been arrested if you did something like that this day and age, but yet we know and acknowledge and believe Jesus was divine, like, and he was sinless. But my mom would have snatched me up by my ear just like your mama would. You don't act like that around here. We at church, boy. But yet we know that Jesus was without sin. So like, what's happening that it's okay for him to be in there, like just totally disheveling what's happened? in the temple, understand that where this would have took place was in the outer courts of the temple, a place that would have been referred to as the court of the Gentiles, say the Gentiles, yeah, the court of the Gentiles, it's the outermost court, this is the biggest part of the temple, and I've said it before, but let me ask it again, um, how many of you this morning, like you were born, like I'm talking about from Jewish blood, like you are sure enough Jewish by heritage, how many of y'all are like straight up Jews, all right, we got one in here, two in here, all right, and the rest of you are not, all right, Neither am I. We would be considered, according to biblical standards, the outsiders, Gentiles. These two folks over here, they would be able to go past the outer courts to go in and worship God at the temple, but you and I, we'd have been hanging out on a back 40. We weren't allowed to go past the outer courts. This literally would be the court of ethnic, where we get our word ethnic. It literally meant for them the court of the nations, That's where all the outsider people who weren't Jews who believed in the one true God of Israel could come and have a place to pray and worship God and give their offerings. But the problem is this is also where the temple conducted all of its business. On just a regular boring day, it would have been hard to worship God in the outer courts, the court of the Gentiles, because this is where the coffers would have been set up. And they didn't just have like joy boxes like we do. Woo. Um, and they didn't throw paper money in there, nice and quiet and discreet like. Right, their money was in the form of coins and their coffers had these like brass horns on them so that when you, when you threw your money in, it, it, it was just like this loud, obnoxious noise. Just to say like, oh, look at me, how godly and generous I am. Like it's hard to have quiet prayer and worship God on a boring day at the temple when people are doing that. But you want to show up on a day where the whole known world that believes in God as the one true God shows up to the outer courts of the temple and it's Passover week. And they're exchanging foreign currency in there because you had to get the currency of the people of Israel so that you could buy your offerings in order to make an offering, a sacrificial offering to God so that the blood of that lamb or bull or goat would be poured out on behalf of the sins of your family. And it was a madhouse in there. If you could imagine like the movies in the 80s and 90s on the Wall Street trading floor, just all the yelling and shouting and buying and selling, that would have been the outer courts. But you'd have to throw livestock in there just to add to the whole religious circus of what was taking place. And Jesus shows up to the temple that day and he shuts the whole thing down. He starts flipping tables over of the money changers. He starts flipping the chairs over of people vending livestock and he takes center stage and he begins to declare over the people that my house shall be called a house of what? For who? My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Because remember, amidst all this madness and chaos, you as a Gentile, an outsider, the only place that you could have quiet prayer and worship in the presence of God was in the middle of that madness and Jesus wasn't having it anymore. We love this part about Jesus, where we get to see his heart for the nations. We really get to see, especially we appreciate this coming from a multicultural society and a multicultural country. We love to get to see the Jesus that is an advocate for all the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation, whosoever would believe in him as the one true God is invited to come and worship him. And we get to see that sweet moment As Jesus comes and wrecks the temple to create a quiet... I bet everybody was quiet after he did that. Boy, you could have heard a pin drop. This was meant to be a place of worship for outsiders like us, the people of the nations. And Jesus made a way for us again. And yeah, that's exactly what he was doing that day, flipping tables. But that's not all that he was doing that day, by flipping the tables. Like understand, like these people who had showed up to buy and sell and trade and exchange currency, they, they were doing what they had always done because this was the way it had to be done. They had no choice. I mean, they had traveled from God knows how far They had scrounged up every bit of extra money that they had. They were coming to Jerusalem on Passover week to remember the promises of God and to present a blood sacrifice for their family so that their sins could be atoned for for a season so that just for a short time they could be made right with God. This is all they knew. They were still under the old covenant. This is what we would have had to do, Gentiles. We would have traveled with everything that we had With every little bit of extra money that we had, we would have come to Jerusalem in hopes to be able to buy the most expensive and best lamb that we could afford to slaughter on the temple steps in order that our sins might be dismissed by God, that he would look away from our sins for a time so that we could be made right with him. It wasn't a one time for all time kind of sacrifice though because next year we'd have to come back and do this again. And think about it, mamas, like this was a nightmare. You had to bring the kids with you. There's tens of thousands of people at any given moment pressing in on the outer courts of the Gentiles, trying to exchange currency and buy their stuff. The ancient historian Josephus said, in any given Passover week, it was not uncommon for them to sell and slaughter more than 255,000 lambs on the courthouse steps. You wanna talk about madness? Oh, it was chaotic. And just to add to the chaos, you had traveled for days with your littles with enough supplies to sustain your family for the whole journey, for the week in Jerusalem and for the journey back home. And now here you are with tens of thousands of people pressing in, trying to get to the outer courts, mamas. And you're standing there with your kids and then your kid sees the cotton candy machine over there and they just take off running because there's 2.7 million people around. You can't just shout and say, hey, come back. You have to leave your spot in line, go get your kid. And they ain't gonna let you back in the line, are they? Oh no, you gotta go to the back of the bus it was a nightmare but it had to be done the old covenant required it of us this is why the writer of hebrews says that this was an insufficient system god knew it too The whole sacrificial system of the old covenant was insufficient because we would have to do this over and over again. And the high priest would have to go make an offering for all of us over and over again. And when Jesus came in and starts flipping tables, everybody had to have been thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? They weren't celebrating it. They would have been horrified. All that they went through to get to this moment and now they're third in line and Jesus wrecks the whole thing. I came all this way so that I could be made right with God. And now I can't even exchange my currency and buy my lamb. What are you doing, Jesus? This is one of the many moments, obviously, that put Jesus on the radar of them having a reason to try to take him to the cross and kill him. But see, Jesus was doing something really big right here. Jesus showed up in this moment, stepping into that temple. God himself steps into that temple going by the name Jesus and interrupts the cell of every sacrificial lamb because the unblemished lamb of God had just walked into the building. And this lamb, once it was gonna be slaughtered at the end of the week, when Jesus poured out all of his blood, his blood wasn't gonna cover up our sins for a time. It was gonna wash them away once and for all, for all time. This is what Jesus was doing when he was clearing out the temple. He was uprooting the religious establishment and replacing it with himself. Of course, we didn't know that yet. We would have been thinking, Jesus, you're a madman. Are you crazy? How am I supposed to be made right with God? We didn't know he was about to make us right with God. Whosoever would believe in him. But what does that have to do with a fig tree? And why in the world did Jesus have such a bad attitude about a fig tree that was out of season? Just to catch us back in the story, let's go back to the beginning and read a few verses so we understand what was happening. Remember, Jesus took two trips to the temple, one to just check things out and one to come flip it on its head. And we see in chapter 11, verse 11, as Jesus entered Jerusalem, after everybody shouting Hosanna, he went straight to the temple. It was late in the day at this point. He goes straight to the temple. He looks around at everything as it was already was late. And then he went back to Bethany with the twelve. And then when he was on his way back to the temple on the following day is when he came from Bethany and he was hungry and he saw in a distance a fig tree that was in leaf, say in leaf again. And he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it was not seasons for fig. And he said to it, may no one ever eat of the fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. What does this have to do with Jesus flipping The temple on its head on this early Passover week morning. Um, Listen, when Jesus came across the fig tree on the way to the temple, knowing that he was about to do what he was about to do, Jesus couldn't pass up this opportunity for a powerful and memorable object lesson for his disciples. He knew they weren't going to forget this one. This tree was going to paint a picture of what Jesus was doing to the temple in Jerusalem and to all of religion itself. But In order for us to understand how that works, let me explain Middle Eastern fig trees for you. All right, Middle Eastern fig trees actually bore two kinds of fruit. One of which was, any guesses? Figs, good guess, right? But the figs only grew in season. But the way the fig trees worked in the ancient Middle East is like when a tree was in leaf, meaning that it had a full canopy of leaves, it would also produce these little sweet nodules. That's why Mark told us that the tree was in leaf, even though there weren't any figs. There was the expectation when you came to a fig tree that was in leaf, that it was going to be covered in all these sweet little snacks, these sweet little nodules, so that passersby could stop for a minute in the shade and eat of the fruit of these sweet little nodules on their way. And while Jesus was hungry, from a distance he saw that the tree was in leaf, and assume that it was gonna have the sweet little nodules even though it wasn't fig season. So he shows up to get something to eat off the tree only to find out that there's no nodules on the tree. And that's a clear indication. That's a clear indication that a tree like that is either diseased or it's dying already on the inside. And the vastness of its branches and the sprawl of its leaves were no indication of the health of the tree. Jesus knew that it was already dying. And so he cursed the tree to die. You see, Jesus, the whole point of what Jesus was pulling off right here is he was showing us that growth without fruit is a sign of decay. He knew it. The disciples were as confused as we were. But I'll say it again, growth without fruit is a sign of decay. You see, Jesus' whole lesson here about the fig tree was that when you come up to a fig tree in the ancient Middle East, it really doesn't matter how big it is, how many leaves it has attached to its branches or how far sprawling its branches are and how much shade it can give to a passerby. You know why? because the tree was not doing what it was designed to do. It was dead on the inside. And this is a perfect object lesson for Jesus to show the disciples before he goes to flip the temple on its head exactly what the condition of the religious establishment of the day was in. As 2.7 million people gathered around to come go through their ritual sacrifices, to come and pay their offerings, to come go through all the paces of religion and their time that was required under the old covenant. Jesus uses this tree as an example to show it doesn't matter how vast the reach of that temple is. It doesn't matter how big it has gotten or how many leaves attach themselves to the stems of that tree and call that tree home. The bottom line is if it doesn't produce fruit, it is dead or decaying at best. And Jesus was coming to put religion to death the same way he put the tree to death so that he could replace religion with relationship. He replaced the old establishment with himself, with his presence. You know, this is uh, particularly convicting because I live in a day and time where quite frankly, even though we have the unblemished lamb of Jesus, the Christian church in the country that I live in has far too long measured its success, measured its vitality, even measured the blessing of God on their church by how big the tree was, how many leaves found a home attached to that tree all the while, the measuring stick of the Christian church in the modern area, modern era, has been more concerned about buildings, budgets and butts and seats, and hardly any concern about the fruit that it is producing, of a changed life of making disciples. And this was Jesus' point. They were missing it. And he was about to replace the whole messed up thing with himself and a real thriving relationship with him. That This is why, I mean, about five years ago, we as an elder team came under a wealth of conviction that the measuring stick of a healthy church is not the seating capacity of the church, it's the sending capacity of the church. How many disciples are being made that are now turning around with the burden of the calling that they have received by the King of heaven to go now and make disciples everywhere they live, work, learn and play. That's the fruit that Jesus meant to produce through his church. It wasn't so that we made tally marks of our gatherings, but so that we can make tally marks of change and transformed lives of people as people find fruit and vitality from the tree. Man, it's great when the tree's big. It's great when there are lots of leaves. But what good is it if there's not fruit all over it? That's why we're committed to everything we're doing here at Grace to be about fruit producing. About learning to submit to the life of Jesus and the everyday ordinary stuff of life and allowing him to live his life through us. Because truly he's the only one that can produce the fruit that he has set out to produce in us. Our pastors and elders don't pat ourselves on the back because our post COVID numbers are still up over a thousand people. Our hearts have changed and we see it as a thousand opportunities to reach a community of a hundred and thousand people with the gospel of Jesus as we continue to point people to the fruit of a transformed life in every class that we offer and every Bible study and every sermon we preach and every song that we sing and every event that we have is to try to point people to this one that they can have a relationship with, a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Our individual lives, by the way, Grace Bible are of equal and paramount importance. I'm not just talking about the church as the establishment, what we're about. I'm talking about the church of what we are about as a people. A church that pushes back against the the temptation and the pressure of cultural Christianity. A church that lives their lives learning to submit to Jesus and all the stuff. A church that starts to see their neighbors and their friends and their classroom as a mission field for the glory of God. And interestingly enough, in both of these situations in Jesus' life, when the thing happens, whether he flips the tables or curses the tree, the next words that come out of his mouth are actually about the exact same thing. He told the people in the temple when he flipped the tables, verse 17, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then after he curses the tree, he looks at the disciples and he preaches a sermon on prayer. What do you think he's trying to get across to us? And this fruitless situation and this tree that's struggling to produce fruit. What what do you think he is suggesting is the very lifeline to the fruit of God being produced in the lives of his people? What do you think? More Bible knowledge? Was that what the sermon was about? What about a more sterling moral presence? That we just had the most moral people in town. Was Was that the... The source of power that Jesus was pointing to in both of these situations, what did he say? Prayer. You know why? Listen, our prayer lives are a direct correlation, have a direct correlation to our intimacy with Jesus. Our prayer lives are the tell of who we see Jesus to be and what we believe that he is all about. Our prayer lives are the direct measure of intimacy. In in other words, you tell me what your prayer life's like, I'll be able to tell you what your relationship with God is like. The call that Jesus gives to us is not an ascent to a greater morality or even ascent to more Bible knowledge. There's people that know the Bible really well that will never darken the doors of heaven. Knowledge is not evidence of a transformed life intimacy and in prayer with the Savior and the King is. That's how it works in your marriage, isn't it? The more you communicate, the more time you spend together, the more you get to know each other, the more you share life together. I wonder if our prayer lives look anything like that. I wonder how many of our prayer lives lack power because quite frankly, we don't see God as anything more than the chief executive of my comfort. And honestly, my prayers are like I go to God when I need something because that's his job. He's a gumball machine in the cosmos, right? Yeah, I'll put my 25 cent in. I'll do what I've heard I need to do to get God to give me what I want. But the reality of it is, is like his main job is to do what I ask him to do. You don't even know who you're talking to if that's who he is to you. That's a a barometer of the intimacy of your relationship with him is that he's no more than a sidekick or a servant or a spare tire in your life when things go wrong. Now show me someone who has an intimate prayer life that spends more time in their prayers acknowledging who God is and confessing before him his worthiness and celebrating and giving thanks to him for the work that has been done on the cross and through the resurrection and the hope that we have in him. Show me a person like that. I'll show you a person that knows and loves Jesus deeply and whose prayers have power. There is a healthy tree out there, one that produces fruit constantly and it's unstoppable. And Jesus told us in John 15, he says, I am the vine. And you are the branch. And apart from me, you can do nothing. But any branch that abides in me and I in him will produce much fruit. Not because you pray a lot and then you go out and try to figure out how to be fruitful. Branches don't produce fruit. They never have. Branches just display it. The vine produces it. Ask any citrus guy in town. And so our job is to abide in the vine as we cling to the very life giver himself. Yeah, through studying the word of God. Yeah, through Christian community. Yeah, through doing kingdom business and doing what we know we're called to do. But ultimately the backdrop of all of that stuff is an intimate prayer life with the king. That's where the power comes from. That's where the nutrients flow from the vine itself through the branch which is convicting for me because I'm busy and I need God to stay on hold constantly just in case I need to pick up the phone. But I feel the heavy burden of how prayerless my life can be and how much my relationship with Jesus lacks intimacy in seasons because honestly I'm all about trying to leverage him for what I need. You know what, let's not just talk about prayer. How about we just pray right now? I'm going to pray and you're going to pray. So in other words, don't listen to me pray. You pray while I pray. See how this is going to work? You speak with the Lord while I speak with the Lord. Lord, I am so thankful that the unblemished lamb of God walked up into the old covenant, flipped it on its head, and replaced it with himself. Lord, I thank you that I get to celebrate a life that has been rescued and is being transformed by Jesus. God, I know I need a lot of help, but God, I know you're the only one that can do it. You're the only one that can produce fruit in this church. You're the only one that can produce fruit in our lives. And so Lord, I I cling to you right now knowing that you are the source of everything. That this is all about your glory anyway. This has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. And so God, I lay my life down before you. This is your church, we are your people. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us how to abide in the vine through rich and intimate prayer lives, that you would produce lasting fruit in our lives that truly transform the world around us. We know that only you can do it. And I thank you for the invitation to cling to you. You are worthy. In Jesus' name.